Welcome to Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm Matthew Hawkins. What if there existed a college student majoring in, say, political science at an elite university? This student is trying to navigate political beliefs in light of a newly found Christian faith. If another believer, ones who, say, had spent a great deal of time thinking and praying through the ramifications of Christianity for our political beliefs, had the opportunity to coach this student, what would that look like? My guest on Capital Conversations today has done just that in his new book, Letters to an American Christian. Dr. Bruce Ashford engages a hypothetical student writing a series of letters covering a range of political issues with a view towards applying our faith to the public square. Dr. Bruce Ashford, welcome to Capital Conversations. Matthew, thank you so much for uh, having me on the podcast. Bruce, you serve as provost and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. Give us a plug for Southeastern and tell us a bit about what keeps your attention in a typical week. Yeah, so I love Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. been on faculty here for about 16 years and been provost for about six years. I love this institution. Uh, strong emphasis on our thought life, but also on our affection for God and an emphasis on the hands, if you will, on activism, on uh, uh, you know, on acting, doing Christian missions and evangelism and public theology and political engagement, all of these things. And so, yeah, great, great context. And then as a provost, the word provost etymologically means prison warden. <laughs> so lots of jokes to be made there. And it and, sounds appropriate uh, for most seminary students. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I digress. Yeah. You know, nobody knows what to do with the word. You know, I tell people it means may I refresh your coffee, Mr. President. But it uh, basically just means chief academic officer. So I'm the right hand man to the president on academic issues. And prior to writing this particular book, you've published and written elsewhere. Where might listeners find more of your writing uh, in the recent past? Yeah, so in terms of articles, I've written probably 50 or 100 articles for Fox News Opinion, written a little bit for uh, the Heritage Foundation, the Daily Signal, the Daily Caller. Uh, My website is bruceashford.net. And then finally, I've written a few books, One Nation Under God, uh, Christian Hope for Political Engagement. And another book that I'd mention is Every Square Inch, An Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians. And I want to ask you a quick follow-up on that, Every Square Inch, because it relates to the subject matter of Letters to an American Christian. What does Every Square Inch allude to? Yeah, so, you know, there was a, an old Dutch guy about 100 years ago named Abraham Kuyper, who was a pastor, but also ended up founding a university, a national newspaper, a, a political party. And served as ended up serving as prime minister of the Netherlands. His name is Abraham Kuyper. And at his inaugural address for the Free University of Amsterdam, university that he started, he's got a famous statement where he says there's uh, something to the effect of, you know, an English translation, there is not one square inch of this universe, of this cosmos, over which the Lord Jesus doesn't say it is mine. And so I agree with his statement that every square inch of this world uh, is Christ. So if, if his lordship is as wide as creation, then it's also as wide as culture. And if his lordship is wide as culture, then, you know, his cosmic lordship has something to do with every aspect of culture, art or science, politics or um, economics, scholarship and education, sports and competition, business and entrepreneurship, uh, marriage and family, church, all of these different aspects of culture, right. Christ's lordship relates to them in, in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So before we get started into 
Letters to an American Christian, having recommended Every Square Inch, I see that you're publishing a book on politics during an election year. I think I'm onto your game here, Dr. Ashford. Why this book? Why now? Yeah. So, you know, uh, two or three years ago, I co-authored a book and published it, One Nation Under God, just before the 2016 election cycle. But, uh, and this was before, you know, this crazy election cycle. We, we, we wrote it before that. And then I just realized over the past two years that our cultural life in America and our political life is is something like a combination of a war, carnival and a Hollywood movie, and maybe yeah. the worst aspects of all three. <laughs> just um, And everyone is trying to figure out how to respond to many of the issues that are arising right now. And our discourse is so polarized that I thought that I, I would try to write another book, a series of letters to an American Christian, and and time, time it to release, you know, before midterms, because, you know, election cycles are a time when people's interest is peaked, right. and I hope their interest is peaked right now. Sure. So on that format as a letter, why pick this letter format? Yes. Well, you know, um, uh, let me list several reasons. One is, it's just a lot of fun to write. The letter format, the, the book is organized as 26 brief letters to a hypothetical college student named Christian, who's just become a Christian. He's double majoring in political science and journalism, and he's trying to figure out how his Christianity relates to religion and politics, church and state, and then to, you know, a couple dozen hot topic political issues. And so in writing a letter to him, you know, I got to have a lot of fun. This book, I, you know, we get, uh, I got to joke, make cultural references at right. the same time that we're dealing with some pretty serious issues. I wrote this book uh, for people to want to be able to read it at the beach or in an easy chair. I wrote it to be a, you know, a fun read, uh, but a, an informative one. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Generally speaking, big picture, religion and politics. Should we mix them? Do we mix them? What's your counsel for young believers and old for navigating that question? Yeah, so the relationship of religion and politics, um, you know, and so I'd start by saying the question about what is the relationship between religion and politics is not the same as what the relationship is between church and state. They're related, but they're separate. Right. In terms of religion and politics, you know, I'd argue that they cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible defines religion uh, differently than a lot of people do. You know, a lot of people define religion as the private worship of a supernatural deity. Mm-hmm. Bible defines it differently. If you want to find somebody's religion, find their God. If you want to find their God, find what they've made ultimate in their life. It might be the God of Jesus Christ. Right. It might be sex or money or power. And the Bible says, locate a person's religion by locating their God. And then it relates their God and their religion to their heart. And in the Bible, the heart is the central organizer of a person's existence. And so religion is heartfelt. It's the central organizer of our existence, and therefore it's going to radiate outward into everything we do. So it's very personal, but it's not private. It's very, you know, because it's personal, it's also public. And if that's the case, we really can't separate our politics and our religion. If somebody's religion is not affecting their politics, then it's not really their religion. Something else is their religion. Right. So there are a few, um, say, theologians and philosophers kind of in the background, uh, also people who have now passed away. You mentioned in your book a guy named John Rawls. Why mention him, and what what kind of different take does he have on religion and politics? Yeah, John Rawls is a, was a classic contemporary example of classical political liberalism, and he was known for uh, writing, you know, he had uh, wrote a number of books, but... Um, 
He wrote books on uh, political liberalism and on justice. And his view was something like this, that if, if citizens want to make this nation what it ought to be, make it great, if you will, that what they ought to do when they're, when they're deliberating and discussing and debating political ideas is and determining what, what justice is, for example, is they should hide themselves behind a veil of ignorance. What he meant by that is that when we're deciding what's best for our society, we should pretend that we don't know what religion we are, what economic status we are, right. what race we are, and that sort of thing. And in his mind, that would make us more fair-minded, mm -hmm. right? We, we would all pretend that we're not who we are, that we're just a generic human being, right. and then we might be more fair-minded with each other. And he, he said that we especially should um, set aside religion or heavy ideologies, right. like if someone had a Marxist ideology. Mm -hmm. What he wanted, in effect, was a naked public square, right? Because right. mm -hmm. he, he viewed religion as something like a coat that you could take on and take off, or clothing that you could take on and take off, and when you come to the public square, take your clothing off. Yeah. And what we want to argue from the Bible is that religion is not like a garment that can be discarded or taken off. It's a lot more like your skin. It'd be hard to rip your skin off right. before you went into the public square. Or even more to the point, uh, religion is a lot like your heart, right? right? It, it's located in the heart, and you can't take your heart out when you walk into the public square. So as Christians, we would say that our Christianity should inform our thinking on public matters. And, and I think that the Christian religion, that the gospel will make us, should make us our better self in public. Yeah. In terms of the truth content of what we believe, but also in terms of our disposition and demeanor. Now that's not always the case, Sure. but it ought to be the case. It ought to be the case. We're making a normative argument here, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, a lot of us see politics, or as Christians talk about politics, enter the public square, we see it as uh, a battle of power, uh, the use of power. Some of us might be inclined, uh, particularly when we know we don't like the overarching, let's see, the center of gravity of the current political moment. Some of us might be inclined to think politics is, uh, at best, a necessary evil. We either dislike it, disengage, or when we do engage, it's all pure pragmatism. It's a necessary evil. But what I see come through in some of your writings is positing that politics actually can be a good. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, you know, here's how I see it. And I take this from Abraham Kuyper, uh, Father Abraham. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he said something like this. In the book of Genesis, it tells us that God created different kinds of animals, you know, different kinds of inanimate matter. And what the Bible doesn't directly say, but what we can see when we read the Bible and when we read uh, history and when we read culture is that God also created different kinds of culture, art and science, politics and economics, business and entrepreneurship, and so forth. And that each of these kinds of culture has its own uh, center and its own circumference, its own reason for being and also limits to its jurisdiction. And politics is one of those. And I, even if we hadn't, sin hadn't entered the world, I think we would have government and politics. It mm -hmm. wouldn't be the same as today because there, there would be no sword. There sure. would be no need for military or police officers or anything like that. But we would have had to have some sort of way of organizing society. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. And the implications of that are after a while, you build societies and sometimes on a large scale. And you've got to decide how to organize your life together. Which side of the road are we going to drive on? Who's going to bring the, the pumpkin pie to the fall festival and so forth? And so I think politics is not a bad realm in and of itself. It's a good realm in and of itself. And yet, 
just like every other realm of culture or sphere of culture, it gets corrupted and twisted in the wrong direction. So as believers, what we want to do is to the extent that God gives us expertise or opportunity, uh, we want to enter into that sphere and untwist what's been twisted. Yeah. And to, you know, speak a good word into a bad situation. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a redemptive, the possibility of redemptive action in the public square through politics. Would that be fair yeah, to say? You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's a missiologist named Les- Leslie Newbegin who posed the question famously, what would it look like if we were able to bring the West into a missionary encounter with the gospel? And that's a great question. And it's a question that drives my interaction in politics and public life. Uh, I'm always asking, what would it look like if I were able to take a Christian framework of thought in general, and the gospel in particular, mm-hmm. and help bring the West into a missionary encounter with it through right. the avenue of politics and public life? Mm-hmm. I think it's a challenging question, and I'm not sure any of us uh, are yet doing all that well with it, but I think that's yeah. our challenge right now. So, Dr. Ashford, uh, how might we think about the difference between, say, Christians as individuals participating in the civic process, perhaps as an elected official or as a single voter in the voting booth, versus perhaps maybe a different role as the institutional church speaking in a collective sense in the public square? Do you see a difference there? How do you think about those two kinds of roles? Yeah, great question. I think it's a question where there's a lot of confusion. And we need to bring some clarity to it. So a little while ago, we argued that there is uh, that we can't really separate religion and politics. Not mm-hmm. even possible. Mm-hmm. But we can separate church and state. Now, in addressing that question, I want to talk about the church in two different ways. The church mm-hmm. is an institute and the church is an organism. Right. All right. So mm-hmm. the church is an institution in the sense that it's uh, a, a local church that gathers, uh, gathers, say, on a Sunday morning. Right. And it does a fairly circumscribed set of activities that the Bible outlines, right? We, we read the scriptures, somebody preaches or teaches from the scriptures, we yeah. sing together, we take the Lord's Supper, we baptize people. And the point of that service is to declare that Jesus is king. Right. That's the whole point of it, that mm-hmm. Jesus is king, and because he's king, he can save, and that only Jesus saves. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, what the church's institution does politically is it nourishes our identity, our political identity, our truest political identity, as ambassadors of a cosmic king, Christ. And by implication, if Jesus is king, Caesar is not. Jesus is king, Congress is not. Jesus Mm -hmm. is king, president is not. Mm -hmm. That Jesus is the ultimate ruler of the world. And so what what that does is it just recenters our political identity. So that is political in a deep and profound sense of the word. Right. However, the church as an institution is not a public policy think tank, and uh, the church as an institution should not try to control the government. Right. And so it's not political in those senses. And it's not partisan, right? It has political implications, but it's not partisan. That's exactly right. The the, the main point of the church is not to, um, you know, drive elections and election cycles. And I'd add in for just a minute before we deal with the church as an organism that I think preachers should be very careful um, making calls on public policy from the pulpit. Sure. There are times when the Bible speaks directly to a 21st century public policy issue. Right. But they're very rare. Mm -hmm. The Bible speaks very directly to moral issues. Right. But usually it speaks indirectly to public policy issues in a 21st century democratic republic. So. 
Now, the church as an organism is a different thing. The church uh, is not just an institution that meets on Sunday mornings, is the, in some ways the work of human hands. We're also an organism connected to one another and to Christ at the head. And that means that when the church disperses or scatters on you know, Monday morning for the rest of the week, that we enter into these various spheres of culture, uh-huh. art and science, scholarship and education, politics and economics. We enter into those spheres and we have the opportunity to untwist what has been twisted, to speak a good word into a bad situation, to make things what they ought to be, to be witnesses for Christ. And I think broadly speaking, we do that in any given sphere, and and in particular the political sphere, by asking three questions. One is, what is God's creational design for this uh, sphere of politics? Uh, Number two, how's it been corrupted and misdirected, twisted, by uh-huh. sin and idolatry. Mm-hmm. Then number three, how can I untwist what's been twisted? How can I bring healing and and redirection to that which has been corrupted and misdirected? Yeah, and that's going to look different for different ones of us. For a politician, it's going to be a, uh, for, at the national level. It's going to be an all-consuming thing. It'll take you know fifty to seventy hours a week. Right. For an American citizen, it's a little different. It's it's you know our politicking can happen at the voting booth, coffee shop conversations. Facebook conversations, mm-hmm. it is, and it's not quite as all-consuming, but it's every bit as significant. Yeah. And so the challenge is for everyday Americans to really know what they ought to think on given issues, mm-hmm. you know, or and, and then also how they can persuade people rather than be off-putting right. on, on those issues. Yeah. It's one thing to kind of order our political views and philosophies uh, ourselves. It's a little different uh, skill set we uh, often maybe neglect as far as trying to win people over to those particular views, right? And particularly in the social media age, it's uh, a little easier to follow, you know, fire off arguments and that kind of thing instead of trying to meet someone where they are and uh, trying to compel, give an invite and uh, offer kind of through rational conversation why you've taken the position you have. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. The early church they talked about the they talked about persuasoria and dissuasoria. Uh-huh. All right, so dissuasoria is the way of the closed fist, and persuasoria is the way of the open hand. So the way of the closed fist is when people attack the Christian faith and we block those attacks. Uh-huh. The way of the open hand is is the way of persuasion. It's when we use uh, the warmth of human kindness. Or when we use imaginative persuasion or, or wit or humor or whatever to draw people in and to make them want to investigate Christianity. And I think we've lost the way of the open hand uh, as Christians in America, and we've got to regain that. And then the second thing I'd say is this. Uh, think about Christian missionaries and what they do and what we can learn from Christian missionaries and put into action in the political realm. Mm-hmm. Christian missionary, when it, you know, goes to another country, and think about what a missionary does. He goes in and learns the language, learns the culture, mm-hmm. finds common ground, and then works from that common ground. Now contrast that with the way we as American Christians are attempted to a- approach political debate. We say we encounter a secular progressive or even a secular conservative that mm-hmm. we disagree with, we tend to sort of, I don't know, mock them or insult them, tell partial truths about them, kind of yell at them or speak down to them. And, uh, you know, it's not effective and it's not a good witness. And yeah. so I think what we, we have to do is listen to secular progressives and secular mm-hmm. conservatives. 
hear their arguments and then enter into a real and genuine conversation. Yeah, I'm seeing that dynamic. I think uh, on a recent podcast, I may have even discussed this uh, with Pastor Joel Rainey. We talked a little bit about how we as evangelicals in the mission context, like you said, like we train up a missionary to learn the local culture, the language, right? Even, especially even often before uh, they more actively engage in evangelism and and, uh, trying to plant a church, right? Uh, And yet, here in the States, maybe we don't recognize how diverse our even local community and culture is, and therefore we don't have that instinctive missional attitude when we engage the public square, because maybe we maybe we presume too much about that everybody's kind of more or less coming from the same culture that we do. Yeah, so I think that's one thing. There are two major things here. One is uh, presumption that you mentioned, and then a second, secondly, I think we feel like we own this country. Right. There's something that's ours that we possess has been taken from us, mm-hmm. and the people who took it from us are evil. And so since they're evil, they need to be talked down to, mocked, uh-huh. yeah. and browbeaten. Yeah. And so then, you know, when we interact in that manner with people across the political aisle, yeah. um, and, and everyone's doing it. Right. Uh, TV, cable news networks, TV talk show hosts, radio show hosts, not you, of course, not your podcast. <laughs> Not this podcast, of course. <laughs> but when we do that, we lose a marvelous opportunity to cut our own wake to mm-hmm. um, to show a more excellent way. And the more excellent way, I think, is a combination of truth and grace, right? So uh, truth without grace in a political arena makes us political bullies and jerks, uh, as they say. And grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities. Uh-huh. And what we want to do is have that uh, special combination of truth and grace that will set us apart from the TV talk show host, from our president, uh, from uh, various politicians, uh-huh. and and we'll show a genuinely different and better way. Yeah. I like that metaphor you just used, the uh, create our own wake, the vision of a, a boat cutting through the water, right? That's, uh, that's a pretty unique metaphor and one I've not heard before. So uh, props to that. Let's pivot then into uh, some of the particulars that you talk about, the particular issues that you talk about in... Uh, in letters to an American Christian, uh, you mentioned some of uh, alluded to some of this trend in America right now. The idea that people have uh, our political opponents are, are have done something different with the country that's ours, or they're trying to take it away, or they're you know trying to wreck it. Whatever the whatever the uh, fundraising hyperbolic uh, news media claim is at the moment. But there does seem to be an increase on, say, American nationalism uh, that we haven't seen recently. How do you coach young Christian to think about nationalism? Yeah, you know, so nationalism has really been this this word that's uh, very vaguely defined usually has been in the public eye now for a couple of years uh, in Europe and in the United States. So let's talk about three or four different senses of the word nationalism and then how I coach uh, a Christian to respond. So the first sense is what we could call civic nationalism. And that is really just patriotism. And, uh, you know, in brief, I'm all for it, you know, to have uh, a sort of affection uh, for our nation, to want the best for it, to genuinely admire and appreciate the good in it, uh, to want to get rid of what whatever is bad in it. I think civic nationalism is something good. I think it gets mocked and demeaned and dismissed by half the country. Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe sometimes overdone by another half of the country, yeah. but so, but overall pretty good. Uh, second type of nationalism is ethno-nationalism. So ethno-nationalism is when one particular race or ethnic grouping uh, within a nation gets primacy. And in a word, I'm against this, you know, so white nationalism, 
white supremacy, sometimes white identity politics, uh, the, these different um, strains of thought uh, tend to elevate or separate the races or ethnic heritages from one another. Uh-huh. And so I'm against that. I mean, uh, it ends up in injustice invariably. And I think we ought to fight it tooth and nail, not just from the pulpit, but also from the voting booth. Right. Then you've got a couple of other kinds of nationalism uh, that are related to one another, economic nationalism. And that really is just an attempt to grapple with globalization and how, um, to what extent we should allow our American economy to be intertwined with the economy, economy of other nations. Mm-hmm. So we recognize some very real problems we have in the United States. We've got working class people whose jobs have been you know, taken from them sometimes right. because of globalization. Um, and then so the question is, do we then withdraw from trade agreements? Do we stay in them? Mm-hmm. And my answer is that a lot of times the jobs haven't actually been lost because of globalization. They've been lost because of technological advances, you know, robots replace people or whatever. Mm -hmm. But to the extent they have been lost because of globalization, I'm not I I think it's probably a little bit too late in the game to uh, to withdraw from those alliances. So an economic nationalism, um, uh, you know, uh, undecided. Yeah. Then finally, you have nationalism and foreign policy. Right. So. This is the question of where should the locus of power reside? Mm -hmm. Should it reside in a national state or in an international body? And I think that on the whole, the locus of power should reside in the national state. Uh The nation should have integrity and sovereignty. Uh, That doesn't mean we can't have organizations like the United Nations, and I'm I'm fine with having the United Nations. I just think that the locus of power and the sovereignty and and integrity should remain with the national state. So. We're trying to bring some light to the issue instead of just heat, Right. instead of just sweeping dismissal or a glowing approval of nationalism. Yeah. Let's define our terms before we give our opinion. Yeah, I appreciate the definition of the terms and uh, pretty clear the ethnic nationalism is a problem for the Christian, but there's some other versions, as you mentioned, of nationalism that perhaps Christians of goodwill could enter into uh, some conversation and and come out on different ends uh, or, or different conclusions on uh, matters of uh, particular policy. Fair fair to say? Yeah, that's fair. That's a, that's a good way to put it. We're going to have to continually sort of come, come to grips with that because if we can't come to grips with that, we just turn into an, an aggregate of, of uh, jerks and blowhards who can't live <laughs> alongside one another. All right. So another issue that you coach up young Christian on is the Supreme Court and their interpretation of constitutional law. So what does a Christian care about uh, how the Supreme Court rules? And particularly, what do we care about? Why, why is there a Christian view or why might there be a Christian view of the Constitution and law? Yeah, it's counterintuitive, right? How in the world could uh, Christianity have any uh, vested interest in a, the constitution of a nation? Let me give an American reason, just kind of a, a legal reason to care, uh-huh. legal and political reason to care, and then give it a specifically Christian reason. So in terms of in, in legal and political terms, you know, Harvard Law School, the Ivy League Law Schools, and the Supreme Court have been split down the middle um, for decades now on this issue of how do you interpret the Constitution? Is the Constitution to be interpreted the way uh, the people who wrote it intended for it to be interpreted, yeah. you know, the way it would have been received at the time it was written? Right. Or can we just treat it like a wax nose? Can we insert things that we want to insert and take things out that we want to take out? Yeah. And uh, so the legal and political response is that the Founding Fathers actually gave us a process for changing the Constitution if it needs to be changed, and they put it in the hands of the people via the legislature. Yeah. 
So if the people want to change the Constitution, they can. But if they don't, it cannot and should not be changed. Yeah. Right. And so there's a legislative process for doing that. And when you have the begowned lawyers, the octogenarian begowned lawyers of the Supreme Court, right. who make themselves into basically mullahs, uh-huh. uh, you know that the you know Muslim judges are actually moral philosophers. Right. In America, our judges are not our moral philosophers. They're not qualified. Right. And I'd probably take the moral views of the first you know two thousand names of the New York phone book, or, you know, as Buckley said, (laughs) over the moral views of of those nine justices. So that's that's not their job. We don't need any mullahs at one first street (laughs) at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, But then the Christian answer is this. I think as Christians, we care about texts. Mm -hmm. We think that words matter and that we ought to be careful in interpretation. And we've seen the havoc wreaked on the Christian scriptures when people treat the Bible like a wax nose. Right. That gives us a reason to say, listen, don't do violence to the text of the U.S. Constitution. The text of the U.S. Constitution isn't revealed by God. It's mm-hmm. not inerrant or infallible. Right. So it can be changed, but it needs to be changed. It needs to be interpreted the way that it was intended. Uh-huh. And if it's going to be changed, let's change it in the right way, the way that it was, in inten- it was intended to be changed. Yeah. So, Bruce, we're living in an age of fake news, alternative facts. As a result, sometimes we only pay attention to the tribes of media that we want to pay attention to, and we are less inclined to listen to those with opposing or, or varied views on the subject. How do you coach a young Christian, uh, particularly you know one who's mindful and thinking about journalism as a profession, uh, in approaching this information age? Yeah, so this uh, we've got a really tough challenge right now. What's happened in the past you know, 40 or 50 years is, you know, with the development and the onset of the internet in the past few decades, that uh, that news and opinion can be offered by anyone in the world and accessible instantaneously by everyone in the world. And so you don't have gatekeepers uh, to the extent that we used to. You don't have a person who is educated and held accountable uh, as a gatekeeper for information, anybody can put their information out and can put it out immediately. Right. What that has meant, in effect, is that radio uh, show hosts, television outlets, uh, news outlets, and so forth are now competing with websites. And uh, they're competing with websites that have no gatekeepers. And they know that if they don't sensationalize, if they don't tribalize and weaponize, they're going to lose readers. Right to crazy websites. And so even our national media outlets now are having to become more tabloidish, all of them, or um, to to lower their content and lessen their gatekeeping. So here's what I encourage for an American Christian for, uh, is to pay attention to who it is that's telling you information and ask, can I really trust this person or this outlet? I recommend that you read six or eight different outlets or watch you know, a number of, you take your news and opinion from a number of different television outlets or websites or whatever, so that you can sort of get a broader view right. of things. And then try to be aware of confirmation bias. That confirmation bias is that we all want to have our views confirmed, mm-hmm. but don't just read news that confirms what you already believe. You know, there's something really dangerous about sitting in your house and watching the exact same cable news outlet. All, all day long and into the night. Time, right. And then it becomes the most formative guiding factor in your life, far more so than the Bible and the church, or far more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. So then the final thing that I would say is let's support honest journalists and honest politicians 
honest podcasters, eh? <laughs> you know, honest radio and TV hosts by by voting for the honest politicians and clicking on or reading or watching the honest talk show hosts and, and journalists yeah. and then ignoring the ones who are less honest or spending less time uh, watching or intaking what they have to say. Yeah. So it sounds to me, uh, I think what's what's helpful for for some of us in our in our circles are relatively easy to uh, reject the hyperbole on both ends of the political spectrum, whether right or left. It takes a little more work to maybe identify people who are, say, if I'm right of center, someone who, who is on left of center or vice versa, who uh, has a different view than I do, but is reasonable and is not hyperbolic and uh, actually at least uh, is willing to hear the controversy. Those kinds of personalities and uh, content creators, I think they exist, uh, but they're a little more hard to find, right? They're, there's some burden of action on our part to seek those out. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, there, there aren't that many people out there who are uh, trying to give the whole picture and and then uh, make a an accurate judgment. What you have is you have talk show hosts and politicians who tell partial truths by conviction right. for the entirety of their career. Right. Because the whole point <laughs> is to defeat the enemy, and it makes it a whole lot easier to defeat them if you lie about them, tell partial truths. Partial. We just have to, we have to quit that. It is never okay to lie and tell partial truths about the people we want to, people we disagree with. It's yeah. not okay. Christians can't do it. And we right. can't pull for talk show hosts who do that either. Right. But, you know, it's not okay. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. Uh, that, that sounds like another book title, right? Half Truths by Conviction, something like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's a forth, forthcoming from Dr. Ashford. I think you're right. Because uh, even um, in the space where you have someone who uh, doesn't try to hide their bias, uh, whether it's a political ideological edge or a religious edge or whatever, uh, if you can find people who at least are candid uh, and honest about their bias and accurately reflect the views of their opposition, I think those are the kinds of people we want to view and consider and uplift, even if we uh, don't come to their conclusions, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think uh, a good point for us to take away is in our own coffee shop conversations, Facebook threads, Twitter interaction, for us to be very disciplined and to make sure that we're trying to do the same thing. Now, mm-hmm. I don't always do it perfectly. You know, I've, I've right. uh, come to the temptation to you know, misrepresent the people with whom I'm I'm arguing or debating. Right. But we've got a marvelous opportunity right now in a very toxic um, public discourse. I mean, we're just, it's just circumambient inanity and imbecility and idiocy all around us, it feels like sometimes. Right. There's people, you know, mocking and insulting and lying and telling partial truths. We have a wonderful opportunity to to show a different way, to, to cut our own wake, as we uh, uh, talked about a moment ago. And to make sure that we don't do that, that yeah. we enter into debate, uh, respecting the other person, giving them the dignity that they deserve as creating the image and likeness of God, uh, hearing their argument, and then persuading them. And that's what this book is about, Letters to an American Christian. It is to help yeah. American Christians have something to say that I hope is, and that, that something is shaped by our Christianity, and that our disposition and demeanor doesn't ironically contradict the tr- our, our truth content. Yeah. So, Bruce, you write and cover several issues in the book. We've just scratched the surface of, of a few. Uh, you talk about race relations, dignity of life, and the just war theory. But I want to pivot back to a Southeastern seminary question. What are you saying to prospective students, incoming students into a seminary, but also, say, outside the pastorate who might benefit from a seminary education? Yeah, so Southeastern Seminary, you know, is a wonderful institution. We're a huge seminary. We've got over, more than uh, 4,000 students, undergrad, grad. 
level and advanced studies, doctoral mm -hmm. studies. And uh, at the undergraduate level, we provide an amazing uh, um, education to all kinds of students, not just pastors and missionaries, but students of any sort who want a Christian education. And we require them to read the great books, right? So we make them uh, read Plato and Aristotle and Kant and Hegel and Marx and, uh -huh. and all of these big books. And then to evaluate these books and assess them according to their logical coherence, empirical adequacy, existential viability, and also in light of Christ, you know, Christian worldview. Um, so we give them uh, not only a theological education, uh, but also a, an education in Western civilization. Yeah. Then at the seminary level and the PhD level, what we try to do is we try to equip students who will go into a variety of different vocations to uh, look at the whole world through the lens of Christian scripture and to take a total Christian worldview, a holistic worldview, and uh, for that worldview to shape the way we um, think and the way we feel, and the way we act, and whatever vocation uh, God uh, sends us into, whether that would be uh, pastor, or missionary, counselor, educator, or uh, in your instance, a uh, 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 policy expert, you yeah. know, a person who's involved in politics and public life. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate your time, Dr. Ashford. Yeah, well, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I really appreciate you being willing to interview me, and just very grateful. This has been Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Special thanks to Gary Lancaster for editing the audio and to Marie Duff for posting show notes online, which are available at ERLC.com. There you'll find additional podcasts and other resources to equip your church and plenty of notes to learn more about Bruce Ashford's publications and Southeastern Seminary.